Hello, I'm Jen. This is Gardening Out Loud. And it is a misty Monday morning in the garden. And we're not going to be spending much time here this week. This week, we have a visit with herbalist and educator Maria Salakoski. I visited Maria's on July 21st on a Friday night as the heat of the day was dissipating and this beautiful golden hour light shone through the tall climbing beans in the garden. When I arrived, Maria greeted me with a cup of tea that she had harvested fresh just before my visit something that she felt captured the garden in that moment. So what was amazing was that I got to not only see and smell and hear the garden, but I actually got to taste the garden before we even began. And I can't share that taste with you, although there was Tulsi and lemon verbena and a little calendula. But I hope I can conjure the garden for you in other ways today. I first visited Maria's garden last year and I was so excited to see someone doing permaculture in the city. So keen that in fact, I signed up for a workshop that Maria was doing just days later so that I could come back and spend more time there and learn more. Now we haven't talked about permaculture a lot on this podcast and certainly during this conversation we don't define what it is. So before we get started, I wanted to give you the gist if you're not familiar with this term. Permaculture is basically a kind of systems design. So it works with natural flows of water, nutrients, light, materials, with the contours of the landscape, with all of the beings that live in that space. It is regenerative and produces very little waste because essentially in permaculture, you have as many closed circuits as possible rather than a sort of linear agriculture where you have inputs and outputs and those two never connect. We're aiming for something closer to nature itself. Nature does not know waste. That's not the way that natural systems are designed. So people who are practicing permaculture are trying to mimic nature in that way. The other thing I want to share about this visit, which was really exciting, was that right when I arrived, we saw the first hummingbird of the season. It was the first one Maria had seen and the first one that I had seen. And I love hummingbirds. To hear the sound of its wings beating nearby makes my heart race. And so this felt very auspicious. And also it felt appropriate because how I felt during that visit was like a little hummingbird rushing around, soaking up little bits of nectar vibrating at a higher frequency. And that lasted long after my visit finished. This episode is a bit longer than some of our other guest episodes because we in fact covered three distinct gardens while I was there. And 
Maria is such a font of knowledge that I wanted all of you to benefit from that as much as I did being there. So we get to spend a little bit more time together today. My last note is that the last about three minutes of my time with Maria, the audio quality just takes a big old dive because my mic did not connect properly. And so the audio quality is not good. It's just raw phone audio. But I do hope you'll persevere and listen to that because that is where Maria sums up some of the guiding philosophy that governs her garden. And I don't want you to miss it just because bad audio recording is my curse. So please do hang in there. Okay, that is enough preamble from me. Please enjoy your time with Maria and I will be back after to talk about a few of my key takeaways from the visit. My name's Maria Selikovsky. I live in East York and we live on a pie-shaped lot, which is a real gem in our neighborhood. And I garden in the front yard, in the side yard that used to be a driveway, and in the entire backyard. I run a business called Wild by Nature here from our home. And I teach people how to homestead in the city, how to reconnect with their wildness, how to have relationship with plants, how to work with herbs, how to grow vegetables, how to tend the soil. I teach workshops specifically about herbs. I'm a herbalist and I have an apothecary of all kinds of botanical wonderfulnesses that I make from herbs that we grow in the garden. A lot of skincare and teas, herbal tea scents, and I also make things that I'm not allowed to call medicines that are my medicines like tinctures and syrups and potions. We'll start here because this is where it started. We moved here in 2015, so this is our ninth season here. And in the first year, I just watched everything to see what was happening that was very difficult to do. I did have a bunch of pots. We moved here in July, so I had started to garden at my other place, but I did transplant a lot of herbs because I cannot operate without a herb garden. And then each year we expand a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. So I watched the sun. I saw where it's hot, where it feels cold. And our, our house, the way it is, our house is placed diagonally on this pie-shaped lot and there are additions to this house that have been added over the years and the original house it was just a one-room house that was built in 1919 so I've looked on historical maps of Toronto and there was no road service here there was no water there was no electricity at that time so I love that like imagining what was here at that time I decided to turn this driveway space into the first garden. And it started with the border between, we share a driveway with our neighbor and 
there was about three inches of soil and there was hostas growing in there. So I started a bunch of herbs, thyme, anise hyssop, chamomile, fennel. I, I brought mint from my mom's house and I started all of these seedlings and I just put them in. I, I hardly put like just a few inches of soil. I was on a super tight budget the first year. I maybe bought like two bags of compost and a, and a bag of soil. And just in this little strip here about 20 feet long and planted these herbs and after that first year I had a little jungle living wall of a separation between our driveways and a little bit of privacy for us and down the street there's a little parkette called the Everett Park and the city was replacing sewer pipes and they were using that as their home base. So they had all of these pallets there. And I just walked up to them once and said, do you think that I could have some of these pallets? And I did all my research about what kind of pallets were safe to use. And they said, sure, how many do you want? Point them out. And they brought a little forklift and just drove 10 houses down the street and brought me 10 pallets and left them here at the side driveway. And so we built three planters out of recycled pallets and put grid cloth at the bottom and well they had seven good years and then last year this one had fallen apart so we used a bag that we had soil delivered in it just took a day to make each planter we tried to use every little piece of everything so these are the struts that that are the frame holding the shape of the planter and then the sidewalls of the planter are made with like the actual slats of the pallet and considering that it's just spruce pine or fir it's done amazingly well for seven years and I'm astounded that this one's still alive so we put the pallet planter on top of another pallet because I knew immediately that we were going to be covering this whole concrete area with wood chips we planted these in the spring and then we had to have a tree cut that had broken the foundation of our basement. And so on July 1st, we had like a mountain, like about 20 cubic yards of wood chips and then it started. And so we spread the wood chips all along the driveway and then slowly, slowly we've built up around this area and we've got corrugated steel and cedar planters. This is also made out of cedar, but it was scraps of wood from my husband making our front sunroom, he turned it into his office during COVID. Those three little rectangle planters are my original cedar planters from the Home Depot that I had when I moved to this house. This is a bathtub from our <laughs> bathroom. I originally had buckets here, like 20 gallon buckets, but I found that the buckets against the wall of the house, which is metal siding, It was too hot. So our the exposure of this garden is east, south, and west. And because it's this driveway space in between houses, so it's kind of nestled and it's a little microclimate. There's not as much wind as the rest of the neighborhood. There's a little heat pocket here. And then add my neighbor's humongously 
large driveway that ours was, but his is a perfect blacktop driveway and brick house that radiates a lot of heat. And then the 20 liter buckets next to the house with indeterminate tomatoes, they were doing amazing until July. And then they were all root bound and they were too small. So I have used those buckets for many other reasons, but we started to find things like a rain barrel a neighbor was giving away because it had a hole in it. We needed much larger containers to grow against this wall because it's all south and it gets really hot. And then we also started to see what are the heat loving things that we can plant here. So because it's so hot in the spring and we have this extra warmth, we grow peas here because it gets a head start. So knowing the microclimate in not just our property, but of all of the different areas of where I'm situated has been very helpful. This is where I grow my best veg. Every second or third year, these wood chips break down so much that they are fantastic compost. And then we distribute them throughout the garden and then get another truckload of wood chips. We're probably due to do that this fall, but we might wait until next year. And I was laughing about the borage in your last podcast because the wood chips have broken down so much. You can see there is plenty of life growing. I am constantly pulling things out of the wood chips. All of these herbs are self-seeding themselves all over the place. So I haven't planted borage or coriander in this area for like I think I planted it six or seven years ago. This was solid borage with the peas, but it started to get too spiky and too hard. So I just cut it back and then it regrows and it keeps refreshing itself. When I take the peas out, I'm like, oh, look, there's another 20 borage seedlings in there. So besides eating the flowers, we don't bother with the leaves. I love borage and I plant a lot of it because, or I, I let a lot of it grow, I should say, and the coriander because they are bringing the pollinators, which will then help pollinate our vegetables. And I want that to happen. I want there to be a living ecosystem where many things can come and enjoy themselves. And, and then I use it as a mulch. I just chop it up and then I mulch anything that needs to be mulched because borage is also a dynamic accumulator like alfalfa, like yarrow, like nettles, like all of these things that I grow to take that nutrition out of the soil and then bring it back to the soil in a specific targeted way. I love borage for that because it's a really fluffy mulch. So it it doesn't weigh you down. It doesn't weigh the soil down and it, it dries nicely. So it leaves some air space there. But I usually use the peas as a mulch also, as particularly I have this tradition of using the peas, the pea vines as a chopped up mulch for the tomatoes. But I already had straw around the tomatoes. So we didn't do that this time. So this garden is constantly evolving. We're still considering there's this two-car garage behind you at the end of this mega driveway turned into a garden. And I do have a dream about it being like the workshop space, like a big open studio where I dry all the herbs, I make all the teas, I make all of my skincare stuff where I can have a climate-controlled place that all of my bottles and packaging is stored, all of my herb stock is stored. And then when I have workshops or when my husband runs workshops, we have a space that we can do that. But 
something else that we haven't agreed on yet is the plan because it's like do we have a slanted roof and make it a green roof or do we put solar panels or do we want to have a roof that has a beehive and a little greenhouse on top so there's so many possibilities and I feel like it's really important to leave a little space for dreaming. So this garden, I think it will continue its evolution like every other area of the garden. I'm going to take you to the front because that is the most recent garden that I'm most excited about. So when we first moved here, there were wonderful plants here. They had it landscaped by a master gardener that was part of the description of the real estate sheet but nothing was in the right place and this Japanese maple was one of those things this tree is such a survivor I would say that this tree is at least 15 years old if not more when you go to a garden center and you see how small they are that they sell them and that they're $200 when you grow things you don't recognize the value of plants in a financial way like I just recognize the value of plants in how does this nourish me how does it contribute to our landscape how is this part of the ecosystem is this a useful plant for us from many different perspectives so part of the mandate that I have for how I choose plants and how I what I keep and what I don't keep is I really need for there to be nothing poisonous. I need for there to be a use for it because I'm an herbalist and I make medicine to distribute to people and I, I help people in my community. This front garden, it's a very small garden. It's like very narrow at the front and about 25 feet long. It's like a pizza slice actually more than a pie slice. And I was always growing ornamental flowers and things here and the year before. Last year I decided that I was going to turn this into the apothecary garden, which for me meant plants that you can't just nibble, but that need a little bit of process to turn into something useful and helpful. So this is St. John's wort. That's mother wort. Peony, bergamot arnica, wood betony. So all of those things have medicinal uses if you know how to prepare them. And then we just put this quince tree in the middle because a family friend had a seedling and she offered it to us. And I said, of course I want that. So echinacea. I'll actually let you feel the medicinal uses of peony. So you can use peony in a tea. And one of the incredible things about peony is how ephemeral it is, its scent is. I've made a peony hydrosol with it and you can't dry peony and capture that smell. You can't dry it for tea. The color fades, the scent fades. When we were dealing with the smoke days, I came out early in the morning I harvested like a dozen fluffy pink peonies and I came inside and I made hydrosol and, and that soothed my heart <laughs> to do that. But a peony hydrosol is very nourishing for your skin. It has salicylic acid in it. So it's very helpful for mitigating any kind of oxidative damage, which is basically how we rust and age or sun or environmental pollutants and all sorts of things. People do eat peonies 
I'm not very fond of the flavor. It's more like people are excited. I think about, wow, you can eat this gorgeous thing. This one is special because it came from my mom and you, you know, they're not very happy with you when you transplant them. So it takes some years. And this was the first year that the peony wasn't just like 10 blossoms. This was like 40 blossoms. It was unbelievable. And they didn't all come at once. So it was a continuous thing. So June is one of my favorite, favorite times. I also planted astragalus here, which I'm excited about. It's super tiny, but I have the space to experiment. That's one of the adaptogenic herbs. I think you'll see when we go into the back that everything that I do in terms of herbal medicine is about mitigating stress. And every single person that I know has stress because we're all human and we all deal with stresses. It has an effect on your body. And there are a lot of things that we can do to support our bodies. And when you manage your stress, and you find ways to reconnect to yourself and resource yourself, I think that that is the bouncing point for you to be a kinder and better human in this world, which I really believe everybody needs to be. When you look at the amount of rage and injustice that's happening in the world, like everybody, please just come hang out in the garden with me for an hour and remember what it is to feel Okay, these hollyhocks, I just need to tell you, three years ago, I went to Richter's Herbs and I got hollyhocks because hollyhock is in the mallow family and mallow is very mucilaginous, so it's very soothing for your membranes. So any kind of cough, any respiratory thing, any throat thing, any kind of allergy thing, digestive issues, will really benefit from having something made with mallow. I planted it, I got so excited, I bought a plug tray, I got 12 of them. Not a single one flowered, it didn't come up, and I had rust all over the bottom leaves, so I pulled them out. These never flowered and never seeded, but somehow they came back on their own three years later to be this incredible eight-foot-tall, deep wine red color of hollyhock that just it's striking. It makes me feel like I really live in some magical cottage. <laughs> Let's go to the backyard. So this garden, this is probably my favorite space because it's where I, did you see? Did you see the groundhog that just went by? Oh. Yes. Look, look, look. Jen, it's right there. Do you see? Oh, it's so beautiful. So the groundhog is absolutely brilliantly smart and has a very discerning palate. And so started telling us about its presence in the garden by eating the kale that is adjoining the driveway. It's very low, like just a 10 inch high planter and completely decimated it, ate all the kale, then went on to eat the carrot tops, the violet leaves, that there's one violet plant in the middle of a huge bed of lettuce. And it was like, lettuce? No, I want these violet leaves. Like it understands nutrition and density of flavor. 
it ate the violet leaves. It's done it twice that the violet's regrown in that salad bed and then it's come back just to eat the violets. So I have an abundance of violets because I grow them and harvest them. They are also a very cooling, soothing plant. I turn them into an oil, I put them in tea. And so go nuts, eat as many of the violets as you want. Also really loves nasturtium leaves, um, of which there is an abundance because I generally grow a wall of climbing nasturtium like I have this year for the hummingbirds, but also because we eat the leaves and we make them into something like kale chips, but with the nasturtium leaves. And I also harvest tons of the flowers, which I turn into a jelly. And then we dry a bunch and, and we use them as like a kind of a floral peppery sprinkle on top of winter soups and just brings a little sunshine there. They dry really well and they retain a lot of color and flavor. I'm okay with sharing the garden because our garden is so large like we have enough elderberries to have any number of birds coming here there's so many berries and i gave a really good cut back to the saskatoon berry to the raspberries to the nanny berry to the goji berries to the elderberries and all of them like quadrupled in size this year and I had I felt like I had been neglecting them in terms of trimming. For example, elderberry, mature branches are sturdier and can hold the weight of a bird sitting there and eating them, and larger birds and more birds. Where if you cut your elderberries back, then the and it's the first year growth, it's more difficult. So there's only certain birds that can come and eat them. So at this point, it doesn't really matter for me about the birds and the elderberries because there's so much. We've harvested uh, abundance of flowers and we will have more than enough berries. Last year, I harvested 20 pounds of berries because I make elderberry syrup as part of the offerings of the apothecary. Next to it is asparagus gone to fern. And um, I'm actually going to take the asparagus out. It was a good experiment. I've given them four good years to really produce but we got asparagus beetles this year and when I take a step back and I look I think why is there not another elderberry right there I have a program every second Wednesday called art in the garden and so people come to just notice draw write journal sing, whatever it is that they want. My daughter has been collecting flowers and putting them in a paper press. And one of the women who was here yesterday, she was standing in the middle of these two stands of bronze fennel. She's smelling the fennel and she's drawing and she wrote and said, this is going to be forever etched in my memory. The smell of fennel while whilst sketching the arborescence of the elderflower. And I thought, I need to have more arborescence of, of the elderflower over here. We harvest every part of this bronze fennel, but we don't do it in the spring because there are loads of black swallowtail eggs. And every time you go to pick a frond, you're like, oh, nope, there's eggs, can't touch that. So we're excited now because now there's so many fronds that it's, it's easier to harvest. And the swallowtails are still laying eggs, but it's not so obvious and stark. But we harvest the flowers and we just dry the flowers. Like we love the pollen of the flowers. It's a more delicate flavor. I like to use those in pickles and especially in tea and some of the seasoning salts. 
then we harvest the fronds. It's just so good. In permaculture thinking, there are zones that you consider. So think about where your kitchen is, where the entrance to your garden is, and then you draw circles radiating out from that space. So in the zone closest to you is zone one going out to wild spaces in zone five. And you would put the things that you harvest and touch and use most often in zone one, things that require still maintenance and maybe a, a daily or every other day check-in in zone two and zone three could be things that you know you're just going to harvest once or twice at the end of the season zone four might be fruit trees and zone five would be the wild edges so there is that sort of a radiating out here i don't have to do anything with the algebraries and asparagus i pick them when they are ready that's on the outside edge i have the almond tree, sage bushes, and hazelnut tree, and this raspberries over here. I don't have to do anything with them, and I let some wildness come into there. And then all along the, the northeast edge of the garden, there's about a 40-foot wide place called the fedge, which is the fruit hedge. And we have every kind of berry that we could experiment with. I've named some of them before it changes. This is just a normal red raspberry. I don't know what variety it is. I got it from my mom's house many years ago. We've got a huge rhubarb patch here. There's a big, big comfrey there. And that comfrey we cut down about three times, four times a year. And primarily I use the comfrey around all the fruit bushes. We have a nanny berry, which is a native bush and is very beautiful we waited for four years for it to finally give us fruit and this year it is so heavy with fruit that it is sagging it doesn't really ripen until October and they are really really dark and you have to wait till they're kind of wrinkly and then they have a flat pit inside and if you go to taste one on its own you just spit it out and say I waited four years for this but my husband took the berries and he cooked them and then he mashed them through a sieve and we had this like deep dark brown sauce that was so rich it wasn't carob and it wasn't chocolate it was kind of like its own date like smokiness he didn't sweeten it he just cooked it down and we used it as a topping on crepes because he he's a crepe making master then we have two different goji berries. These guys are just starting. I got this from Urban Harvest maybe 10 years ago, and I brought it with me from the other location. And this goji berry here is from my neighbor who's also a master grower. She grows all of the specialty Chinese vegetables. And so she gave me this and I'm just trying it to see what it's like. She doesn't actually grow this for the berries. She grows this for the leaves and she eats them just in the spring. I've got two different kinds of gooseberries here. This is a corkscrew mulberry. It's a compact mulberry bush that still produces fruit, but only grows to about six feet high. We have a rugosa rose, which I have chosen for the gorgeousness of its scented flowers. Mm. It's the sweetest rose. It's very, very productive. And right now we wait for each rose to be pollinated. And then I pick all the petals off because we use these roses in a lot of things that we make. And you can see, 
I chose this one, one, because of its beautiful scent, but also because the hips are so big. This is a Saskatoon berry. And we've tried some low bush blueberries here too, but they didn't, they didn't work out. Um, a lot of people tell me that blueberries work best in a pot and we, we might try that one day, but I like to grow things that are a little bit strange that I can't necessarily get at a farmer's market. I'll never grow enough blueberries to satisfy my family, but I'm happy to have the Saskatoon berries so that the birds can eat them. We had a Baltimore Oriole family with the hanging nest coming off of a branch of the Manitoba maple of this neighbor. And, and we would sit on our deck and we'd be eating dinner. And it was like every night they had dinner time at the same time. And we'd just watch them come and take the berries. And then the last edge of the garden is what I call the forest garden. And there is a native climbing hydrangea, which I have to trim back excessively because it weaves its way right into the garage and will continue to grow in there with no light because the garage is quite old and there's red squirrels living in there also. I have a huge nettle patch and we've got violets and then I've got some other things like I put this is a new variety of raspberry I just got this year and I wanted to incorporate raspberries into here and have these violets have a little bit of shade. You can see where the groundhog has come and eaten all these violets. Like, isn't that wonderful that I can have this buffet for them to come and eat? Like, it's nothing. It, there's no absence of violets for us. Like, please come and mow this because I actually need to cut this so that younger violets can come. So the keyhole garden is a, another permaculture idea. And the idea of it is that you are minimizing path space and maximizing growing space and circles are beautiful. So we built this garden in a lasagna style and it's my little paradise in the backyard when there isn't the coriander seeds and chamomile just kind of taking over the path. But I would just lay my head here and just lay down in the path. So it's a circle, it's about 12 feet wide. And then just at one side of the circle, I have an entrance that is just small enough for me to walk through. And then the idea is that the size of the keyhole garden is determined by my reach. So when I come in here, I can reach to the middle of this and from the outside edge, I can reach to the middle. So there's one tiny little path, but there's all of this growing space because I'm able to access it from the outside and the inside of the circle. I think this started as the tea garden, but I grow tea pretty much in all of the beds now. But about a third of this bed is different varieties of lavender, both the Hidcoat and Munstead. So a very floral, dark purple one and the more gray, camphory one. I also house stevia and lemon verbena here, usually. Those are tender perennials, so I, I keep them inside in the winter and then I make cuttings every spring. I have a big stand of anise hyssop, which is absolutely dangerous to harvest at this moment because there are, there are so many bees all over it. And it is often where the chamomile is. And then I have little bits of things like marjoram and oregano. Sometimes I have a rosemary in here. 
So there are things that stay here and then there are things that self-seed. Oh, I planted sweet grass this year right here at my feet. So there are three beds in the back here in the main space and it's taken many mistakes for us to finally get this right. Years of trial and error and building the soil to make it what it is. Tons and tons of compost, tons and tons of compost tea, constantly mulching, never digging. Just so much love has gone into caring for the soil. I was growing vegetables in these two long rectangular beds. They're about four feet by 15 feet. And because my business is herbs, I just really wanted to expand it and just really acknowledge the fact that this is my livelihood. This is my passion. This is the gift that I bring to the world. And I am so happy to support farmers. So we grow the things that we want to harvest immediately and that are expensive to have, like tomatoes. I can buy one heirloom tomato for $6 and I grow apparently hundreds of dollars of tomatoes every year. But I decided that I didn't need to grow butternut squash and I didn't need to grow all the zucchini that I could put in the freezer for the winter. I just needed enough zucchini to feed my family fresh right now. I didn't need to grow all of my cucumbers, but we grow beans constantly because they give back to the soil. So I'm always growing beans. And because the variety of beans that I can grow are just absolutely not available with most farmers. So, but I decided this year to take a bold move towards supporting my herbal business and plant these two massive beds with all herbs. So what I have here is lemon basil. This is a lot of lemon basil. It's already had one big cutting and is almost ready for its second. These are two celery plants that wintered without any protection. And I thought, I'm going to grow this out and collect celery seed because let's see what happens. This bed here is a mix of things. I also wanted to expand the herbs that I grow for calming Nervine mixes. So I grew catnip, an abundance of catnip. It's in the mint family. It's a herb that I've never grown and so I'm just getting to know it. I'm, I'm drinking it on its own so I can understand how do I want to mix it and so far everyone I've given it to was like, yeah, I couldn't keep my eyes open. So I'm excited about that. Even my mother who is like a little dolphin, she hasn't slept in 45 years or something. She says that she, she, I gave her a bundle of Tulsi, which in front of the catnip, there is a full 15 feet of Tulsi basil. And you can see where I've harvested it. And this, this batch here is going to get made into hydrosol because I've been a little late with it. So I don't like how seeded it is. And then behind the Telsey, I'm growing lemongrass, which is one of our favorite herbs for the lemon blend that we make. And hidden behind is ginger. And I grew ginger very successfully last year. I had 20 plants and it was enough ginger. So you can use every little bit of this plant, the stalk, the leaves, and the root, and then like the rhizome, and then even the roots on the rhizome. So I had four different parts of the ginger and I dried them and processed them all separately. You can't see it right now, but ginger actually prefers a shaded environment. It is 
Do you see? It's just growing there. This started as three little gardens, and so right next to the keyhole garden is this big, big, odd shaped of, it's not quite an oval, it's not quite a triangle, it's not quite a circle. And my three sisters' roses are here. So I have Julia Child, who's over here, and she is my favorite rose. She is so beautiful. I wish there was one open for you today. It's called Julia Child because it has like an anise scent. It is the most unique scented rose I have ever smelled. And I'm a real rose lover and it's yellow and she loved butter. And then in the center here, it's quite crowded and I'm going to move it in the fall. She's Therese, Therese Bougnet. And she's a pink, deep, dark pink rose that has a scent. I got it last year from a East End Garden Center and had powdery mildew right away it didn't do anything but I didn't give up I pruned it and she has shown a few flowers and is coming up with some buds but still not impressing me I'm not sure about this rose and then this main part which she really needs a big cut back I don't know what this rose was called but it came from my mom and it's a light pink gentle gentle pink with a very sweet smell it sends suckers out everywhere. So you can see it's taking over this whole place. It started as one little stick just two years ago. I named her Amelie because that's my middle name. So I have Julia, Therese and Amelie, and these are like the three sisters here in the garden. But I am considering making a bridge from this rose bed to that rose bed to Ragosa and like having a rose highway. I really do love roses. So I chose to make this a permaculture garden because I always was very interested in how to make things as efficient as possible. I really don't like waste of any kind and I love to turn something into something else. I love when someone is throwing something away and it turns out to be a treasure for me. I also really feel a lot of pride when I get to make something with my own hands and I get to do something. So during COVID, I really demonstrated to myself that every inch of this space was growing vegetables. We provided almost all of our food because we didn't know if markets would be open. And then I started to wean that down. Permaculture gives me the opportunity to practice efficiency that alchemy of turning something into something else also in my opinion it's less work it's much less work i can be intentional about what is growing on all of these grassy i say grassy with air quotes places in between all of the garden beds there is not grass it's clover it's yarrow it's chamomile it's plantain dandelion so in May, the lawn is providing for me and we're eating dandelions for three weeks and then digging up the roots and having that medicine for me to use in later things. And I love the wild edges. I think edges is a very important place in permaculture. The cycles of our seasons are represented to me in the circles that I have in our garden and in way that I speed up and slow down through the season in how it is 
that I collect rainwater and then that rainwater goes back in or I grow something or I intentionally let something grow even if it is kind of what someone might consider weedy so that I can feed it back to the soil and have it and so I'm always trying to close those circles and make closed systems. I'm nurturing an ecosystem so that more life can be created so that can be a richer environment for us to grow in and I know that this is a very unique place in the city and I want to share that with people. I want people to know it is possible to connect to yourself, to have a relationship with plants, to have a relationship with each other in nature and not have to drive a car to go out of the city in order to do that. Thank you, Maria, for generously sharing all your time and your space with all of us. It was such a gift to be there. I hope all of you could get the sense of Maria's garden being a place of abundance. And not just an abundance mindset, although that is very clear, but abundance made manifest. That appears in so many ways. And one is finding the right balance between sharing with everyone, human more than human, and protecting some things that need protecting in case you're wondering if like the groundhogs and all the other beings can just have that whatever they want. There are some protections there in certain places, little ingeniously crafted cages or protections when things are starting out and they need to get established. But it is also clear that there is a lot to share there. And a great example of this is not something that happened on this visit, but one of my earlier visits. I was getting ready to go and Maria was offering me something, a bit of herb or something along those lines. And I said, oh no, you know, it's fine. I have a big garden. You know, like I don't need that. And Maria said to me, yes, but wouldn't it be nice? And that really stuck with me. I've thought about that often, about the ways that we can grant ourselves and others just a little bit extra, just a little bit of delight, just a little bit of joy. So that's abundance. And we also see how that abundance is cultivated more practically in caring for the soil. And that's something that good permaculturists will emphasize, and Maria certainly does. And we see all the things that she does to care for that soil. So she's approaching it from a lot of angles, avoiding digging, doing crop rotation, hot composting, compost tea, biodynamic accumulator mulches, other mulches, all of those wood chips decomposing in the driveway. And oh, what wood chip envy I have. And let me tell you, based on how lush that garden is, it's really paying off. Oh boy, I'm getting rained on. So let's wrap it up. The last thing I wanted to mention is the depth of delight Maria takes in the space she's created and in all of the life in the garden and her passion for helping other people connect with wildness. 
to see relationships that they might not have been able to see before. And I love so much that she's doing this right where we are, right in this urban jungle. (laughs) I didn't ask for those horns, but there they are. In any case, that's a mission I think you all know I take to heart. I will be back in this garden next week, hopefully eating a big juicy tomato because I'm watching it right now and it's coming. Take care, everyone.